Good morning and welcome to Bevel Talk. Thanks for joining us today. We've got Al Sherrill with Miller Electric with us today. Al, give us a little bit of your history and your background um, as we talk about induction heating. Well, I mean, uh, nobody really uh, knows induction heating out of the gate, really. I mean, it's sort of something you learn as you go along. So my career has uh, strung me from I went to school for electrical engineering and then I was as a service guy for a, an induction uh, original equipment manufacturer for a while. And um, then I was an electrical engineer there. And then when I came to Miller, I've had the opportunity to uh, work with their induction uh, products, both on a service capacity and uh, also on a uh, sales capacity. So I get to work with a lot of applications, work with a lot of different uh, customers on problems they're trying to solve and everything. So that's sort of a little background of what what I've done uh, with induction. So it's really been my career for 30 years. Um, you look at what induction is, it's really just a, an alternate form of heating, right? Uh, it's mainly with conductive materials such as metals. Um, that's what's most common. Um, and we're using a law of physics to do the heating with, right? You're using induction to uh, induce power into the part instead of, you know, where you had to have flame where you got to burn a chemical and transfer the energy in. Uh, we're actually producing the energy inside the part by inducing it in. Uh, so, uh, you know, induction, it's been around for a long time, right? So I know when I was working at my first job, I had worked on machines as old as 1942. Uh, so uh, it's been an industry a long time. Uh, you know, it was actually discovered back in the 1800s or stuff and stuff. But uh, you get to the industry age, right? Everybody's uh, starting up faster ways to do stuff. and. Uh, uh, induction became more and more prominent. I didn't realize that it, it was that actually that old of a technology. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, so help me understand and help our listener to understand where is induction used in welding? Well, I mean, uh, welding is just one segment, right? So uh, I, I think that uh, the, the stuff that I do at Miller has really honed in on the in, the welding applications because uh, you get to see, um, you know, that nice piece of it that we get to know all these welding customers and, and we see their needs for heating. Um, so most of the time uh, when you're, when you first start thinking of heating and welding, you're thinking about these people that have torches out to preheat stuff in order to get, get the metal hot enough to where it'll bake out all the hydrogen before you uh, welded together. If you leave that hydrogen in there, you're you're going to have problems with uh, cracking because all the hydrogen likes to pool up and and uh, cause a lot of stresses and, and eventually can cause cracking. So preheating is just a way uh, that you would drive that hydrogen out. You're sort of baking it out a little bit to make sure that the most of the hydrogens left the area before you start putting the weld puddle in. So that's what you'll see uh, a lot out in the field. But there are other um, applications as well. Another big one is that after the welding is done, um, you start worrying about uh, the different metallurgical aspects of what the weld pedal turns into, right? So um, when you're welding, you you have your base materials, which are usually malleable. You know, you can bend a little bit without cracking uh, and they're not as brittle. Uh, but when you put the weld pedal in, uh, you get a metallurgical transformation, right? You're melting this metal and then when it freezes back up, all the metal crystals freeze in a way that it's that things are really stressful and brittle. So, you know, you go to applications where there's a lot of stress on the material, uh, you know, you're building a building and there's 
however many tons of material sitting on this joint, or you go to a power plant and there's 20,000 pounds of steam pressure behind these pipes. And all of a sudden these, you know, brittle areas would just crack like an egg and, you know, there would be chaos and mayhem. You don't want to do that. So you have to try and make those weld puddles to be, you know, uh, more malleable, you know, bendy, like the, like the original base material was. So there's a tempering process, different metallurgical processes that you can do to get that metal to act like it used to when it was the base material. So uh, you bring it up to a high temperature. Uh, you don't want to remelt the material and refreeze it or anything, but you bring it to a level that's um, – in the metallurgical terms, they call it the A3 critical temperature, right? So it's just below this area where the metallurgy starts transforming again, and you let it sit there a while, and all these stresses tend to smooth out and make the metal uh, nice and be able to bend again and not so brittle. And uh, so those are some very uh, prominent applications that you'll see. It's a stress relieving or a, you know tempering operation. And there's other hydrogen bakeouts uh, that people do to after you get the the weld done. If you have an operation that there's a lot of hydrogen involved with it, so you tried preheating and getting most of the hydrogen out, but some of them are um, they have more hydrogen in the the joint than you want, so they'll have a bakeout operation, which is post weld after you're done welding, where they'll bring it up to say 600 degrees, and that allows that hydrogen to molecularly escape out of where the weld joint is and, and uh, bring those stresses down to where you don't have post-weld cracking. Uh, so there's different operations like that. And it's all usually called out uh, in their procedures, what they got to do, right? So uh, those are the main applications that you'll see in welding is preheating before you weld to drive out the hydrogen, bake out after you get done welding, or a stress relief after you're done welding. Those are the three that we mainly see. Okay. So you mentioned, you know, for a bake-out, 600 degrees, is that more of a rule of thumb or does that come from codes? How, how do we establish this as, as welders or as companies? Right. So, you know, there's a, a lot of intelligent engineers who are behind that, right? And uh, to try and make it to where uh, us common folk that aren't necessarily metallurgists or, uh, you know, me uh, mechanical engineers or whatever, they – they build these codes up, right? And they do all their testing and, and sort of write things in codes. Hey, if you're putting this kind of material together with this kind of filler, this is what we want you to do afterwards. And so most of the stuff is called out in the codes. Uh, so that's that's got a lot of testing, a lot of years of experience behind it, what goes in those codes. And so for somebody that's new to the industry, instead of having to have you know all these engineering degrees and everything, they can go read the codes and take advantage of what other engineers have learned and what what code bodies should should our listeners check into if they're more interested in learning about the the real meat of induction heating? Uh, well, I mean, if you're talking about the the codes, are they're really uh, focused on the applications you're doing? So, for instance, if I'm a fabricator making a pressure vessel, uh, you would probably want to be familiar with ASME uh, Section Nine, Section Eight. There's different sections for different types of vessels. And they'll have uh, codes within them, the B311, B313. So, you know, you're doing the pressure vessel fabrication. You're going to want to know about those codes. If you're doing structural, you know, buildings and stuff like that, everybody's usually familiar with the AWS D11. Um, and there's other, you know, API codes and, and uh, European codes. Uh, so 
that's really sort of a, a loaded question. Everybody's got to sort of know the, the industry that they're fabricating for and, and follow those appropriate codes. But those codes will have those specifications uh, for temperatures they want you to take the material to before and after welding for the different applications. Yeah. And they change too, right? So over time, people learn things about uh, materials or they might see the way some bridge or, or building is affecting the joints that are welded on and say, hey, you know, we might need to make a change there. They'll do some more testing and alter that stuff. So they'll update those codes every five, 10 years. And so being up to date on those codes are important as well. Because if you learned it, you know, 30 years ago and uh, there's, there's a good chance that there's been updates and there might be some different temperatures involved. Okay. So it definitely takes understanding what you're doing, the industry that you're doing and the standards and codes that that are tied to that industry. So now let's dive a little bit into how does induction heating actually work? You know, we've, we've talked a little bit about codes and applications and a little bit about history, but how does it work? Well, I mean, um, when you, when you try and see what's going on, I mean, it uses magnetic fields. So unfortunately that's invisible to our eyes and you have to know a little bit about magnetic theory to get an idea of what really is going on. But uh, the fact is, is that when you pass a magnetic field through a conducting material, it'll generate some electrical current, right? It, it induces a voltage into the material, uh, albeit a small voltage, but a voltage that'll push some electrons around. And so molecules are in motion when you pass it through. But they'll only pass through for a short time. And so we have to basically alternate that magnetic field uh, back and forth to get it to push, you know, energy back and forth. So... When, you, when you're looking at induction heating, you're going to be working with an alternating uh, current going through a coil, and that coil is generating this alternating magnetic field. And when that alternating magnetic field passes through the material, it generates current flows within the material. Now, since, since you're just dealing with a large slab of material, it's not like a wire, right? Um, your electron flow is not sort of building up a voltage like it would in a transformer. So a transformer works very similar. You have a primary side coil and it transfers energy to a secondary side coil, but that's in a wire so you can build a voltage up there. But when I'm in a, a slab of material, a big plate or a big pipe, it's really like a big short circuit on itself, right? Uh, there's really nowhere for a voltage to build up because there's so many places for the electrons to flow, all the current flow to go. So they just sort of swirl around in the material. They call it eddy currents uh, because of that. And so um, you'll see um, this this electrical current. It flows through the material. And as that elect, uh, electron flows going through the material, it's fighting the resistance of the material. So all, all these materials have different resistivities, Right. And so as those electrons are flying through uh, the material, there's some resistance uh, to try and fight the flow of that, and that gives off heat. And so that's where the power loss comes in, and that's where you get the heat in the material. So you're actually generating the heat within the material. You're, you're generating that electrical current inside the material, and then it, it gives off heat by that resistance. So that's the main way induction heating works. Um, so different materials have different resistivity, so you can bet that it, as we talk more about how it works, the resistivity of the material is going to make a difference. Things that are very low in resistance, like copper and aluminum, 
don't heat up as well uh, when you directly do this induction heating as your higher resistivity materials like your carbon steels and your chrome mollies and stuff like that. So that's that's one way of the heating, right? Uh, that's the main the main heat you generate with induction. Uh, the other thing that happens is there's a another uh, property in materials uh, called permeability, which basically describes how it can uh, form magnetic fields within the material. So there's some materials, and the easiest way to describe that is if a magnet sticks to it, right? It's got ferritic material in it, material that can hold magnetic fields, and it's more permeable, you'd say. Uh, there's other materials that don't have any, like aluminum and copper again. You go to that, a magnet won't stick to it. There's not any ferrous material in there. Well, when we're alternating these fields back and forth, you're basically moving those molecules and the material back and forth. They line up sort of north and south. So you got current going one way, and everything lines up north. And then when the current goes the other way, everything has to flop around and go south. So that's called hysteresis, right? So we're actually alternating those fields back and forth, and there's some resistance to that too. It fights that a little bit, and that gives off heat. So again, when we talk about materials in a while, there's going to be some materials that are high in permeability, like your carbon steels and chrome mollies and stuff, and then other things really low, like aluminum and copper. And so induction is going to help heat the ferrous materials better than the non-ferrous materials. So definitely when you go to use induction, um, you're going to have some materials that work great with it, and you're going to have other ones that don't work as great. So it's important to understand when you when you use induction, what's your application? What are you going to do with it? Yeah. Right. It's not necessarily a one-size-fits-everything, every material you're going to want to weld or, or work with. I always think of induction as I was learning. I always visualized electrons playing bumper cars inside of the material, you know, bouncing around and, and causing heat. That was probably kind of a funny way to look at it, but that's... Well, always, you know, since this stuff's all invisible to you, it's it's good to put a mechanical way of that on the way. So you're thinking bumper cars and the way it bounces you around in a bumper car and how that you have to work to, to you know, resist that bumping around. And that's exactly what is going on on a molecular level. And so that gives off heat, just like you build heat when you're getting bashed around, right? Right. Well, it's, <laughs> it's one thing I think that is interesting, as you mentioned, is, you know, the heating actually happens within the part or the material itself. So you're you're not looking for convection or conduction through through whether it's chemical through through flame or resistive heating and waiting for it to actually transfer through the piece or conduct through the piece you're actually using the piece as a heating element itself right right so that gives you a lot of a big advantage in efficiency right so um, when you when you think about using a flame we'll talk about for a second just to give you that idea that they've got to burn this chemical and it makes some very hot flame. But that flame has to pass through air. It has to pass through an oxide layer on the top of the part because usually all metals will have some oxide layer that are very hard like a rust layer or some other type of oxide. And so anything you're burning externally and trying to get into the material has to fight through all those medias, right? And so that that wastes energy. Really, on a, on a good day with flame, about 20% of the energy you're burning makes it into the part. The rest of it's wasted into the air. It's from reflection and just uh, the air taking the heat away. Uh, but with induction, right, since we're actually generating those eddy currents within the base material, the material itself withholds most of that heat. You're using most of that energy up. So... You know, you think about the power you're drawing uh, out of the out of the machine. Uh, so 
I, I might have, let's just put some numbers to it, right? If I have a 20 kilowatt output and you go into the part and most of that 20 kilowatts makes it, you might have to use like 22 kilowatts or something off of your power line coming in. So you think about the power you're spending your money on, most of that makes it into the part. It's not wasted. Very, very efficient transfer. Right. You think about flame, most of the gas you're burning gets wasted into the air. So it's very inefficient, right? And there's other processes as well. I mean, uh, flame, I think, is sort of the big incumbent when it comes to preheat. But there's also some electrical uh, ways of heating. Um, They have resistance heating, which is basically like a toaster element, right? They have resistance uh, elements out there that they have ceramic beads on them and they have a nichrome wire going through them and you pass an electrical current through them and it makes them glow red hot. You slap that up against the material. But again, there's a little air gap and there's a little oxide layer on the material that sort of reflects that heat. So they try and put insulation on the outside of it to hold that heat in to make sure that a lot of that heat makes it in. But if you sit next to a pipe or a plate while you're heating it up, you can just feel all the heat coming out, right? So even that insulation lets a lot of heat pass through it, and it's got efficiency issues because of that. You sit next to an induction uh, setup, and there's still heat coming off the part. The part's radiating heat off of it, but the insulation sort of traps that heat in a little better. So you you can even put your hand up next to it, and it's not super hot. You go up to those other methods and put your hand up to the insulation. It's really hot. So you can see the efficiency just by feel, you know, or you can feel the efficiency, we'll say. <laughs> yeah. You know, flame heating or resistance heating, sometimes it look, it's it's like a heating element or a cooking element on your, your stovetop. You're right. Waiting for the pan to get hot enough to transfer the metal to the water to boil it and yeah. such. So. so there's a good visual that people get to see at home these days is that you, you're used to co- boiling a pot of water on a, you know, you either have a gas flame underneath it or you have that electrical element on the top of your stove that has to glow red hot and get your pot hot. And then eventually your water starts boiling. But now there's being there's there's getting to be more and more induction stovetops out there, and so again that power is making the pan hot uh, because the eddy currents are generated within the pan, and then it transfers the energy into the water much quicker. And so you'd be able to see that, hey, the power I use out of my stove now is a lot less, but I'm getting the water to boil faster. Uh, so people get to actually experience that now in their kitchens if you have an induction stovetop. So more and more, you know, as, as that gets into our kitchens, you're going to have people that say, oh, I know induction. It's really fast and and doesn't cost me as much on my electric bill and that kind of stuff. It's the same kind of things we're doing here in our, in our welding world, but just on a lot larger scale, right? We got more power needs because we're working with big, thick, two and three inch thick materials that need to be heated up. And so we're trying to get energy in there to get it up to temperature quicker so we can get to welding quicker and make more stuff. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Al, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for listening to Bevel Talk. Join us next time as we talk more about induction heating. All right. Thanks.